Welcome back to the Bible Study Tutor. My name is Jessica Hutton and I am the founder of the Bible Study Tutor and the host of the Bible Study Tutor podcast. Today is January 2nd, 2024 and we are going to begin our study of Matthew chapters 3 and 4. If you didn't see the first two chapters, go review it. I'll also link it in the description and if you want a high level overview of the Gospel of Matthew, then I encourage you to go check out the New Testament playlist where I do an introduction to all the books of the New Testament. We're moving through them quickly. We will be done with them by the end of April. So if you haven't started, I encourage you to watch those videos now to be prepared through our transition book to book throughout this one year Bible study challenge. Yesterday, we learned that the Gospel of Matthew is the bridge between the old and the new. Throughout the book, Matthew emphasizes how Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecies. The unquestionable declaration of Jesus' identity as the son of David and son of Abraham, strategic layout and contents of his genealogy, and particular care in clarifying that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and not the son of Joseph were strategies Matthew employed to demonstrate that Jesus was the Messiah that Israel had been eagerly awaiting for centuries. Moreover, he had come as the embodiment of Israel, the true son who was subjected to adversity and able to identify with the plight of his people. Yet his ultimate role was that of deliverer. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Today, Matthew offers his readers more insight into Jesus' mission. We are introduced to John the Baptist, who identifies himself as the one whom Isaiah prophesied would come as the voice of one crying in the wilderness. John would prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. According to Leon Morris, John the Baptist's citation of an Isaiah passage, Isaiah 43, and its application to Jesus is a pivotal aspect of Matthew's high Christology. By attributing words originally designated for God to Jesus, Matthew elevates the status of Jesus to a divine level. This reveals a profound theological understanding of Jesus as more than a human figure, a theme consistent with Matthew's gospel. Further, Morris asserts, this declaration underscores the significance of Jesus as the fulfillment of divine prophecies and the embodiment of God's chosen one. John the Baptist preached repentance and baptized people as a sign of their repentance. The Jews practiced baptism for ritual cleansing, and even then, they tended to baptize themselves. Baptism in that time was only for proselytes, that is, Gentiles who converted to Judaism. His job, that is, John the Baptist, was to prepare the way for the Lord as evidenced by getting the people's hearts and souls ready for the Messiah by removing all the obstacles, hence making the path straight. John's announcement of the coming of the kingdom and his call to repentance were ways of preparing the path for the coming of Jesus. John the Baptist's role in announcing the kingdom and calling for repentance is crucial for preparing the path of Jesus. His proclamation aligns with the broader theme of Jesus' identity being closely tied to the kingdom of heaven. The call of repentance becomes a transformative process, not only for individuals, but for the collective readiness of the community. So as a precursor to Jesus, John's ministry sets the stage for a profound encounter with the divine, emphasizing the inseparable link between repentance, preparation, and the imminent arrival of God's chosen one. John lived an ascetic lifestyle in the wilderness, and many Jews, Jerusalem and Judea and all the region about the Jordan, went to the wilderness to see him. Matthew takes care to describe the Baptist's clothing and diet, likening him to the prophet Elijah, apparently to demonstrate the connection between the old and the new. John's ministry was in keeping with the Old Testament prophets, exemplifying the continuity of God's redemptive plan and signaling the fulfillment of prophesied precursor to the Messiah. Matthew highlights how John rebuked some Pharisees and Sadducees as they apparently saw no need to confess their sins and be baptized. Somehow they believed they were exempt from experiencing God's wrath because they were ethnic Jews, that is, sons of Abraham. He warned them that divine judgment was coming sooner than they expected, and thus, regardless of their ethnic ties to Abraham, those who did not bear the fruit of repentance would be cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew quotes John the Baptist, who addressed the difference between baptism with water, what he was doing, and baptism with the Holy Spirit, which the common one greater than he would do, the one who would judge, that is, Jesus. Next, Jesus comes to John to be baptized, despite John initially expressing his unworthiness. The act of Jesus' baptism introduces the theological theme of identification and solidarity with humanity. 
though sinless, Jesus participates in this baptism, aligning himself with those seeking repentance. It foreshadows the redemptive purpose of Jesus' ministry, marking the initiation of his public ministry and the divine endorsement of his role as, as Savior. Jesus' decision to undergo baptism by John served to authenticate John's ministry. John's baptism was a call to repentance and acknowledgement of sin, and Jesus, sinless himself, participated in this act, endorsing the importance of repentance. By submitting to the baptism, Jesus identified himself with the godly remnant of Israel, those who recognized the need for spiritual renewal and were responsive to God's message through John. This act of identification demonstrated Jesus' solidarity with those who humbly acknowledged their dependence on God's mercy and were willing to turn towards righteousness. So when John hesitates to baptize Jesus, the Lord responds thusly in Matthew 3.15. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus asserted that being baptized by John demonstrated the fulfillment of righteousness. The Greek word for righteousness that Matthew used in the text is, I can't even say it right, dikaiosene. I think it's dikaiosene. Go look at it on Blue Letter Bible and you'll be able to see it and it will pronounce it for you. So in the context of Matthew 3.15, the word is used to demonstrate integrity, virtue, purity of life, rightness, and correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. The phrase that Jesus used, which I'm not even gonna try to pronounce it, but basically the phrase that he uses translate to fulfill all righteousness, which means to perform thoroughly what is right. So like I said, visit Blue Letter Bible and Bible Hub to study the Greek in depth, and then you'll be able to see the words and pronounce them and understand how they are used in this particular context. So to fulfill all righteousness is a significant statement. Jesus was declaring his commitment to doing what is right in the eyes of God, thereby aligning with God's divine plan for salvation. Craig Wombler states it this way, to fulfill all righteousness means to complete, to complete everything that forms part of a relationship of obedience to God. In so doing, Jesus identifies with and endorses John's ministry as divinely ordained and his message as one to be heeded. The Gospel of Matthew is known for its frequent usage of Old Testament themes and motifs, often presenting Jesus as a fulfillment of prophetic expectations without explicit references. And while there may not be direct citations, several linguistic, historical, cultural, and theological clues suggest a connection between Jesus' baptism and the broader Old Testament narrative. So upon review and reflection of those clues, you may recognize how Matthew identifies connections such as the following. The first is the fulfillment of prophecy in God's divine plan. Jesus' baptism holds profound significance and alignment with the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and God's overarching plan for salvation. It transcends mere ritualism, serving as a symbolic and purposeful stride in the unfolding divine narrative. Through his baptism administered by John, Jesus not only validated John's ministry, but also affirmed that John had been fulfilling his role in preparing the way for the imminent arrival of the Messiah, Jesus himself. With the Messiah's advent and his participation in the act of baptism, a symbolic bridge is constructed, merging the narratives of the Old and New Testaments. It is crucial to recognize that while this merging occurs with Jesus' baptism, the Old Testament saga reaches its culmination through his subsequent death, burial, and resurrection. As elucidated further in the book, Jesus identifies John as the anticipated Elijah, reinforcing John's pivotal role in heralding the Messiah's arrival. Jesus' true identity as the Messiah is unveiled with the fulfillment of these prophecies. Consequently, the urgency in John's proclamation for repentance stems from the imminent reality of the kingdom of heaven brought forth by the revelation of the Messiah. It also signifies Jesus' identification with humanity and inauguration of his ministry. Though sinless, which I've reiterated all, several times, Jesus willingly underwent a baptism that was not aimed at repentance, a ritual that is often associated with John's call to repentance. Instead, this act of baptism symbolized Jesus' profound identification with humanity. So stepping into the waters of baptism, Jesus purposefully aligns himself with the fallen human condition, exemplifying solidarity with those he came to save. His baptism is a pivotal moment signifying the commencement of his public ministry. It serves as a public proclamation of his messianic role, the chosen one who would fulfill the divine purpose of saving his people from sins. 
In a foreshadowing manner, Jesus' baptism anticipates the ultimate act of obedience on the cross. Both the baptismal immersion and the crucifixion become integral components of God's overarching redemptive plan. Just as Jesus willingly embraced baptism, he later voluntarily approached the cross, embodying righteousness for the sake of humanity's salvation. Michael Green explains it this way. This was the moment in which John was publicly to announce the arrival of the Messiah and the, state, the start of his ministry. This was a symbolic anticipation of his full and profound baptism on the cross, which lay in the future when he would taste for everyone the eschatological wrath of God and would prefer to anyone the unspeakable mercy of God, just as on the cross he was to be fully and ontologically identified with the sins of humankind. So it befitted him here at the outset of his ministry to set his hand to that awesome plow by undergoing its symbol and sacrament in the Jordan. Finally, Jesus' baptism as a model of obedience and righteousness of believers is another point that Matthew was emphasizing in this chapter. So Jesus' profound statement that this was to fulfill all righteousness underscores his unwavering commitment to righteousness and obedience to God's will. Although his baptism doesn't signify his personal sin, it is a powerful illustration of his complete, perfect submission to the Father's overarching plan. So in this act, Jesus exemplifies perfect obedience and righteousness, providing a profound example for his followers, including us to this day, to emulate. Moreover, his baptism establishes a foundational precedent for Christian baptism, where believers symbolically partake in his death, burial, and resurrection, identifying with his righteousness and pledging a life of obedience to God. And then continuing the narrative, Matthew reveals a theophany that offers readers a glimpse into the triune nature of God. So as Jesus emerges from the water, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and a resounding voice from heaven declares, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This pivotal moment emphasizes the theological theme of God's, the Father's divine affirmation, which confirms Jesus' identity as the Son of God. This powerful event also serves as a profound theological revelation, showcasing the Trinitarian manifestation of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So essentially, Matthew 3 centers on John's pivotal role in preparing the way for the Messiah, spotlighting baptism as a symbolic rite of repentance and forgiveness. Jesus' voluntary participation in this ritual becomes a transformative moment, emphasizing his solidarity with humanity. The descent of the Holy Spirit and the divine proclamation from heaven further underscore Jesus' unique status as the beloved Son of God. So this chapter lays the foundation for Jesus' public ministry and introduces key theological themes surrounding repentance, Jesus' identification, and his divine affirmation. So with that context in chapter 3, let's move on to chapter Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus. In Matthew 4, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness parallels the Israelites' experience during their 40 years of wandering. The biblical theological theme of Jesus as the true ear of Israel emerges as he undergoes testing similar to that faced by the nation of Israel. Matthew 4 begins claiming that the Holy Spirit led Jesus to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Interestingly, this temptation occurred immediately in Mark's words, Mark 1:12, after Jesus was baptized and the Father affirmed Jesus' identity as his beloved son. So the Holy Spirit led Jesus there to be tempted as this was a test of Jesus' character because God doesn't tempt people, but he does allow you to be tested, which was an opportunity for Jesus to demonstrate his obedience and loyalty to the Father and his particular calling. So Frank Stagg explains it this way. Satan's words, if you are the son of God, were not necessarily calculated to cast doubt. Rather, the design of the words, those heard at his baptism, was to prompt Jesus confidently to make certain demands upon God. But sonship is not manifested in demands, but in obedience. Say all that. So in other words, Satan was not trying to get Jesus to question his identity. Rather, he aimed to get Jesus to leverage or abuse his identity as the son of God to get what he wanted on his own terms. This period of testing, which lasted 40 days and nights, echoes the Israelite experience in the wilderness and establishes Jesus as the faithful and obedient son, the faithful and obedient Israel, who was obedient where Israel failed. Israel's disobedience and unbelief led to a 40-year journey mirroring Jesus' 40-day testing period. 
The thematic connections deepen when you examine specific tests faced by both parties. Now notice some of the parallels between the Israelites' experience and Jesus' experiences. The first is the testing in relation to bread. The Israelites were grappling with scarcity and they grumbled about the lack of food despite God's provision of manna. Conversely, Jesus confronts the temptation to turn stones into bread and his response was anchored in reliance on God's word which underscored the, the sustaining power of every utterance from the word of God. And then another example is the testing at the pinnacle of the temple. Israel questioned God's presence at Massa which parallels Jesus' temptation to throw himself down from the temple's pinnacle. However, Jesus refrains because he avoided presumptuous actions and refused to test God, whereas the Israelites tested God. Because in the aim was Jesus understood that you should not test God, and he recognized the inherent dangers of doing so. And then offers of other kingdoms. Israel's historical struggles with idolatry and covenant fidelity resonate in Jesus' temptation to worship the devil for dominion over all kingdoms. In steadfast rejection, Jesus upholds allegiance to God alone, which countered Israel's lapses when they succumbed to idolatry. And then the other aspect is obedience in the wilderness. While Israel consistently disobeyed God during their desert journey, Jesus emerged victorious from the wilderness, exemplifying unwavering obedience and faithfulness. This establishes Jesus as the faithful son in contrast to Israel's unfaithfulness. And then fulfillment of Israel's role. Israel called, was called to be a light to the nations, and they often faltered, but Jesus was the light of the world. And then he commenced his ministry in Galilee, which was a fulfillment of messianic prophecy from Isaiah, which demonstrated that when Jesus, that Jesus succeeded where Israel failed, and he became a light to the Gentiles. The other part is redemption and restoration. The wilderness testing accentuates Jesus' role as a redeemer, triumphing where Israel failed. His victory signals a transformative new beginning, redeeming the failures of the past and offering a path to restoration. It also resulted in the inauguration of a new covenant. Jesus inaugurates a new covenant marked by obedience as the faithful son and true Israel. This starkly contrasts Israel's disobedience, highlighting the transformative power of God's redemptive plan. Jesus' wilderness testing also demonstrates his triumph over moral failure in general. He demonstrated the ability and willingness to be obedient to God in all things, regardless of what kind of pain he wanted to avoid or pleasure he may have desired to experience. Craig Blomberg explains it this way. Interesting parallels emerge between Jesus' three temptations and those of Eve and Adam in the garden. Good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. Both of these triads seem to parallel John's epitome of a human temptation, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Jesus' temptations, therefore, illustrate the precious truth that he was indeed tempted in every way common to human experience. See Hebrews 2, 17, 18, and 4 and 15. This does not mean that he underwent every conceivable temptation, but that he experienced every major kind. Someone who appreciates that insidious lure of one addictive drug, for example, need not be tempted by every other drug in order to empathize with those, with those who have such temptations. But the three temptations shown in Matthew 4, 1 through 11 present, encompass a remarkable amount of human experience. We are tempted to gauge life by human comforts and consumerism, to misuse spiritual gifts and powers for our own glory and benefit rather than serving others, and to seize power by shortcuts such as equating a particular political agenda with God's will. So to that I would add, Jesus' resolute resistance to each temptation reinforces the precept of unwavering obedience to God's word. The principle of relying on God's truth and resisting the allure of worldly enticements becomes a guiding light for believers navigating the spiritual journey amid life's challenges. And this passage reveals Jesus as the true Israel, succeeding where Israel failed during their wilderness wandering. His obedience, victory over temptation, and fulfillment of messianic prophecy underscore the redemptive narrative of the Gospel of Matthew. And it emphasizes Jesus as the faithful son and inaugurator of God's kingdom. 
However, the main point Charles Quarles points out is that this passage is primarily about the holiness of the Son of God that remains amazingly unblemished even in the face of the most alluring temptations and the authority of Christ to which even Satan himself must yield. The Messiah is defeating and binding the strong man and will soon rob his house. It is the victory of the powerful Christ over Satan that gives the believer hope in the face of temptation. He is more than able to deliver us from the evil one. The narrative transition to Jesus' relocation to Galilee signifying the beginning of his public ministry. Matthew writes that Jesus' move fulfills Isaiah's prophecy, therefore revealing Jesus as the long-awaited light shining in the darkness. He, like John, preached repentance and declared that the kingdom of heaven, synonymous with the kingdom of God, was at hand. In the Gospel of Matthew, the term kingdom of heaven is used interchangeably with the kingdom of God. Matthew, more than other Gospels, tends to use the phrase kingdom of heaven. This concept refers to the rule or reign of God over the earth and more broadly over all creation. The concept includes both a present reality and a future fulfillment. So in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus speaks about the kingdom of heaven being at hand, indicating its immediate or present availability. At the same time, there are future aspects of the kingdom that will be fully realized in the future. In addition, Matthew often uses the term in connection with the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, messianic prophecies that emphasize the establishment of God's reign on earth. Thus, the kingdom of heaven is also presented as a fulfillment of God's promises. And so then, after talking about Jesus preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew continues by explaining that Jesus called fishermen, that is, ordinary people, to become his disciples. Now, historically, men would seek leaders that could disciple them. In this unique case, however, Jesus chose his disciples. Craig Blomberg explains here, Jesus possibly imitating Elijah's call of Elisha inverts the standard procedure whereby a would-be disciple came and asked to follow a master of his choice. Jesus called them to be taught by him and model his way of life in every way. Wilkins explains, the response to the call involves recognition and belief in Jesus' identity, obedience to his summons, and counting the cost of full allegiance to him. His calling is the beginning of something new. It means losing one's old life and finding new life in the family of God through obeying the will of the Father. Matthew 4 describes Jesus' teaching, preaching, and healing ministry in Galilee, which serves as signs of Jesus' kingdom power and authority. As a result of these signs, Jesus' fame spread beyond Galilee to great distances beyond the regional boundaries where he attracted both Jewish and Gentile followers. And in the next three chapters, we will learn how Jesus ministered to that large crowd that followed him. So I will see you tomorrow for our study on the Sermon of the Mount.